0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Sabbath School Commentary. I'm really appreciative that you've joined me, and I'm excited to see what this week's Sabbath School lesson has to hold. Let's just have a word of prayer and uh, ask God to bless us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now confessing that without Jesus we can do nothing. Please send His Spirit to guide us into all truth and to convince us of truth, righteousness, and judgment. We believe that the Holy Speech that the Holy Spirit is the only true teacher of divine truth. So give him to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week's lesson is entitled Ministering Like Jesus. And our memory text is found in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. And it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Notice this verse points out what motivated Jesus. It says, He was moved with compassion for them. He wasn't motivated by a desire to become important in the eyes of the world. He was moved with compassion for people. Why? Because He saw they were weary and scattered like sheep. Jesus' concern for people was genuine. Jesus' concern for you and for I is genuine. And therefore, our concern for the lost should be genuine. And our concern for each other as well. Let us be sure that we're not using religion as a way to exalt ourselves. May we not be Moved by ambition. May we not be moved by a desire for earthly glory and the honor of men. Let us not be moved by some sense that we want to be good enough so that we can succeed in ministry. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the new covenant, the gospel commission is not to be used by fallen human beings so that they can become somebody. We are someone in Jesus. Jesus' disciples, when he, when he sent them off on their first missionary journey in Luke chapter 10, they had power over unclean demons and spirits. And God, you know, they preached the gospel in such a significant way that great things happen. And they were super excited about this when they came back to Jesus and they reported to him all that had transpired in their ministry and Jesus, says to them hey guys i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven in verse 17 i think it's verse 17 or 18. and then he says but listen don't rejoice because you have power over the demons but rather rejoice because your names are written in the book of life and so we should rejoice in the fact that our names through the person of jesus are written in the books of life that should be our rejoicing. That should be our satisfaction. And that should be enough so that we can just move forward and we can be like Jesus, moved with compassion for others. Um, people know when we're being genuine and we're being, when we're being, being disingenuous. Uh, and may we not. Um, yeah, I think it's quite cruel. I think it's quite, quite cruel to pretend like you care for people because it's your job or because you feel obligated to. Love is a heaven-born gift that comes from God. May we love as Jesus loved uh, and and live as Jesus lived. So, we're starting off with those thoughts, and let's move in to Sunday's lesson. Let's transition over to Sunday, which was entitled, Jesus' Attitude Toward People. The lesson points out here that Jesus was oftentimes criticized by the religious leaders in his day. He had a different disposition towards the lost, towards the sinners, towards those who had been deemed by the religious establishment as unworthy of associating with. So in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, Jesus finds a guy named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's table and he says to Matthew, follow me and I will make, basically he just says follow me, sorry. He finds Matthew sitting at the tax collector's table and he, he approaches him and says, follow me. Now, after this happens, Matthew you know gets up and follows him. Uh, there's a party that's thrown at Matthew's house and I suppose it's to celebrate his call to discipleship. And there at that gathering, there are certain religious leaders who comment on what's transpiring and they say, hey, I mean, what's up with this guy? This is bizarre. This is strange. He's, he's eating with sinners. And so when, when these Pharisees see Jesus associating with Matthew and people like Matthew, they're puzzled and they're confused and really they're offended because they can't believe it. They don't like it. And, uh, okay, so what do the Pharisees see when they see Matthew? What's their attitude towards Matthew? Well, he's just a tax collector. What's Jesus' attitude towards Matthew? Well, yeah, you're a tax collector, but I see more than that. I see what you are. I know what you are, but I see more than that. I see you through the eyes of faith. I see you through the eyes of love. I see you through the eyes of hope and belief. And and I, I see not just what you are. I see what you can be. And I see what I can do through you. You can follow me. You can go where I go. You can do what I do. You can learn from me and I can train you and build my kingdom upon your shoulders. And this is the faith of Jesus, the faith to see what someone can be and what God can do through anyone. And his attitude towards people was framed by his love for people. Love hopes all things, love believes all things. And so the people at the end of time are called to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, the faith that walks on water and the faith that believes that other people at God's Word can walk on water too. Jesus believed in Matthew and Jesus believes in us and we should believe in others as well. Um, Matthew, he, when he was sitting at that tax collector's table, had a choice and it was the choice to believe what Jesus believed about him or to just see himself as he was Um, you know Jesus saw him not just as he was but as he could be and Matthew just you know Matthew only had the ability to see himself as he was and so does he see himself as he is and how the Pharisees see him or does he choose to see himself as Jesus sees him praise the Lord he chooses to see himself as Jesus sees him and so he gets up and he follows the Lord there's a statement that Ellen White makes and it's found in a book called Councils to Teachers, and it's on page 267. And she says, We are living in a hard, unfeeling, uncharitable world. Satan and his angels are using every means in their power to destroy souls. The good that a teacher will do his students will be proportionate to his belief in them. Consider that. Uh, If it's true for teachers, it's true for everyone our ability to do those around us good is proportionate to our belief in them now let's just a side note here i want to 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 make to you guys let's be sure that you don't have to be a conservative to manifest the disposition and the attitude of the pharisaical leaders of jesus's day i found Coming to Australia, and I'm just going to speak very plainly with you guys. We're all friends and family in Christ, and we're part of the family of God, the church. And so I'm just going to speak very openly and plainly with you. I came into the Australian context and found in the church a lot of people who related to me the same way that Pharisees related to the tax collectors and sinners. And they felt justified in doing that because they labeled me a conservative. And so, you know. Conservative, liberal—those are liberal. Those are those are relative terms that are rarely defined by the people who use them. But um, you know, those who may not want to like you, those who may prejudge you, will just stick a label on you. They'll use a relative term as a pejorative: oh, conservative, all oh, liberal, and they think in doing that that they're then justified in stigmatizing you, opposing you, um, and just looking at you with prejudice and scorn. Um, and uh, they suppose that since they're Jesus-centered people, or at least in their own mind, they're Jesus-centered people, that they could act like the Pharisees. So you brand yourself the gospel-centered person, and then you give yourself a free pass to act like the Pharisees did in the first century. So you can say you're a Jesus, Jesus guy, a gospel-centered guy, uh, but if you don't act like it, then you're not a Jesus, Jesus guy, you know. um, I came up with a term when I came to Australia, and this is not to down, the Australian church. I, I love the church here and by and large it's filled with with awesome sincere and wonderful people um, but I'm just just sharing my experience to it to an extent. Uh, I came up with a term when I came here uh, that there are a lot of liberal Pharisees in the Adventist church and that is people who style themselves progressive God-centered liberals who feel perfectly comfortable Um, stigmatizing and demonizing other people and never even giving them a chance, not even getting to know them or uh, taking any interest in them whatsoever. Just if I label you a Pharisee, well, guess what? Now I have a free pass to just act exactly the way the Pharisees acted 2,000 years ago. (laughs) So anyways, the essence uh, of Pharisaism is not so much uh, their conservatism. It is the fact that they used theology as a way to become powerful, so they were the same as the Sadducees on an essential level. They just used their particular viewpoints to gain power and control in the church, and so the theology was never the issue, really. It was the it was that was the tool, that was the means to an end. And uh, you know, Jesus in Matthew twenty three, I think it's in verse three, he he seems to indicate that he has a favorable view of the Pharisees theology their their fundamental positions their fundamental understanding of scripture their their theological understanding of the, of the text of the Old Testament because he says to to the people he says the Pharisees they sit in Moses's seat do what they say but not what they do so his issue with the Pharisees was not their theology it was the fact that they didn't live up to their calling they were fo- they were fake they were phony though the word hypocrite in the original language of the texts of the New Testament is is basically an actor. You're you're just acting. You're just playing a role in a play, and you're fake and phony. So, um, yeah, you can you know. Anyway, so we can go on and on about that, but I just want to make that point. You know, so don't don't think that 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 you because you have you know an understanding of of the gospel or maybe the mechanical understanding of the gospel that y- you can't be unkind and and nasty towards other people, uh, because you can be. Uh, Lastly, just because I have to finish this up, to be truly, on a a biblical level, liberality is a good thing. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace in John 1, um, and grace and truth. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, the liberal soul, or the generous person, will be made fat. Jesus says, give and it will be given back to you in good measure, pressed down, shaken together and bubbling over. And so um, we're to be generous and to be gracious and to love mercy. And yeah, if you take scripture seriously, you, you then then being liberal is a good thing. God lets his Son shine on the just and the unjust. God paid a ransom for all. He's generous. He's liberal. He's great and we should be as well. Uh, Conservatism, biblically speaking, is a good thing too. Like, right? The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that if you don't receive a love of the truth, God will send you a strong delusion so that you would believe a lie. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. You don't know what you worship, you Samaritans. We Jews, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. So, you see... uh, you know, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, is so concerned about the doctrine, the teaching of the resurrection that he, he's really, you know, he really militates for, um, for that teaching, for that understanding of, of, of truth. And so, um, in Jesus is a blend of grace and truth. And, uh, and so, on a biblical level, conservative is good. Liberal is good if you're conserving the right thing, if you're liberal in the right way. And so if liberal simply means, like, you don't stand for anything and you compromise, well, that's a bad thing. If conservative means that you make majors out of minors, then that's a bad thing. Uh, but, um, yeah, we, we shouldn't allow our culture and circumstances to define the words that we use. But anyways, I didn't intend to go in that direction, guys. Get back to the lesson. Jesus' attitude towards people was very, very different than the religious leaders of his days, whether they were liberals or, you know, Sadducees or conservative Pharisees. Um, yeah, they, they were, he was very different uh, from the teachers and leaders in his day because he believed in people. Moving on to Monday's lesson, we talk about Jesus' treatment of other people. And uh, it's pretty cool here what, what the lesson brings out. By the way, this has just been an extraordinary lesson. We find in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, that occasion where Jesus interacts with a centurion who he says has great faith. So the centurion comes to him. And he's concerned for his servant. Now, this is unusual in that day, at that time, to care about the hurting, the weak, a slave. That was that was very unusual for a Roman soldier in the first place. So this man shows the love of God in his heart, because he cares for those who serve him. At very different disposition than those, you know, ancients in classical civilizations. And this is an indication of God's spirit in the heart of this man. And so he comes, and he said, "My servant." is sick. Could you please heal them? And Jesus is like, game on, let's go. And he begins to say, come on, let's, let's head, head to your house. I'll heal them. And the man says, no, no, no. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but I am a man like you of great authority. And when I say to someone, go, they go. And when I say to someone, come, they come. So if you would be willing to just say the word, my servant would be healed. And so Jesus is like, what? This is awesome. This guy, he's fired up. I can just see Jesus and he's just, he's loving what he's seeing coming from this pagan Roman centurion who most Jewish leaders would not even deign to touch or associate with or have a meal with. And Jesus is like, dude, I haven't seen such great faith, not even in all of Israel. Wow. What a compliment. Jesus is willing to give compliments when a compliment is due. He's not being fake or phony or just trying to flatter this guy. He's being genuine and authentic. He's finding a reason to compliment this guy. He, he's, that's, that's pretty awesome. He, he's treating this guy with dignity and respect. And he's admonishing him for the faith that he has and the faith that he's expressing and the power of God through the gospel of his grace and so, yeah, this is a lesson to you and to me as well. We often say really great things about people at their funerals. We admonish them for all their virtues and we extol all the good deeds, extol them for all of their good deeds. But, you know, and that's, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing to do. It's, it's cathartic and healing for us. And it's good for us to honor people when they die, when they leave us. But the best thing to do is not to wait until they're dead before you say what you should say. You know, before you tell them um, what's great about them, what's wonderful about them, what you love about them. And, uh, you know, I think when when you treat people that way, they're much more responsive to what you believe. Um, you know, I people like those who like them. Like attracts like. Um, we love God because he first loved us. So if we really, really like people and really, really value them and appreciate the good in them, that encourages the good in them and that. Provokes love in their hearts and appreciates it in their hearts for us, and so people are much more open to us when we really like and care for them and treat them, you know, in a similar way to what Jesus treated this. How Jesus treated this guy, um, he didn't care that he was a centurion, that he was a Roman, um, that he was a pagan, perhaps a pagan worshiper, perhaps, and uh, yeah, he gave him a great compliment. You have more faith than anyone I've seen in Israel. Wow. God is no respecter of persons. And I think that's one of the reasons why people would have loved Jesus so much. That is people who, you know, are responsive to God. People who just use religion as a pretext to make themselves great. They hated Jesus um, because they're, you know, they're exposed by him. But, um, yeah, this is a really cool example of how to treat people. And, uh, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Okay, so moving on to Tuesday's lesson. Um, Jesus is... Healing ministry. The lesson brings out the fact that Jesus met people's felt needs. Okay? So he healed their diseases. Now, I want to point out that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the Bible says an angel declares that his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, this statement is a play on the Old Testament story of Joshua, who led the Israelites from their wilderness wanderings into the promised land, which was typical of heaven. So he led them to the rest of Canaan, the salvation that was in Canaan. Um, That's Joshua, the deliverer, the one who delivers the people into the promised land. And so this person, the Messiah, will be called Jesus, because he, like the Old Testament, Jesus, will save his people, not in a temporal sense, but save them from their sins. It doesn't say he'll save them from their problems or their physical difficulty or their crippledness or their blindness. It just says he'll save his people from their sins. But then you see Jesus all over his ministry giving sight to the blind, physically healing people's broken bodies and healing them of their leprosy. So yeah, like okay. Why did he do this? Well, as the lesson brings out, it's because he he was he was meeting their felt needs in the hopes that they would open up to to him healing them of their deepest need, and that is that is the healing of their heart, the healing of their mind. Physical evil is the product of spiritual evil. And so, until the spiritual evil is dealt with, you know, So what if you're suffering the consequences of it? Because ultimately we need freedom from death and sin and not so much just a broken arm. But Jesus did meet the felt needs, number one, because he really cared about people. Something I want to bring out uh, in regards to Jesus' attitude towards people, which was way back in um, Sunday's lesson. His attitude and his treatment of people. I just want to touch on this for a second because there's something I had hoped to say but just forgot. Jesus healed a leprous man pretty early on in his ministry. You can find the account in, begins in in Mark chapter 1 and verse 40. It's found in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 8. I'm not sure of the verses in Matthew 8 and Luke 5. But uh, if you have leprosy in Jesus' day, you have a death sentence. You cut off from your family, your friends, your children, your mom, your dad, everyone. You can no longer practice your trade. You have to live a life of poverty and aloneness, utterly separated from your people. And if you come around town, people will stone you. They'll pick up stones and kill you because of how contagious y- you are. And you're a danger. You're, you're, a, you're a danger to the health and well-being of the society. This is a public health risk. You're leprosy and you have to be quarantined. You have to be s- separated and cut off. And so this man is an untouchable. You can't touch him. You can't let him breathe on you. His filthy, polluted, you know, diseased breath. And he musters up the courage, in spite of this, to to come into Jesus's presence. So he's risking his life, and he's overcoming any doubt and and hopelessness that he would have been wrestling against and struggling against in his in his dregs in the wilderness. And uh, he comes into Jesus' presence and. Matthew's account says he bows down before him. Mark says he kneels down. And Matthew says he falls on his face. What I see here is a progression of events. He probably comes in, into the presence of Jesus, kind of bows himself a bit. Then he falls to his knees, and then he falls on his face. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, it may have been, I'm not, I am not—I can't be sure. It's two, two, it's two possibilities of, of exactly how this played out. The one possibility is that he comes into the presence of Christ, and they're looking at each other, and the leprous man, you know, he sees him, and he bows himself in front of him, and then he falls on his knees, and then he falls on his face. face, And when he's on his face, he declares, he, he he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The the other option of what transpired is he may have come before Jesus and seen him and then bowed himself a bit and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then, you know, then he may have right after that fallen to his knees and then he fell to his knees and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then he falls on his face and says a third time, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. No, we don't know exactly what happened. But we know that he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he probably said that because he wasn't sure if Jesus was willing to make him clean. But he believed that Jesus had the power to do it. Now, this man stands as a representation of the human race, the fallenness, the filthiness, the perversity, uh, the grotesque nature of the fallen, sinful race. And, And we come before Jesus and we say, if you're willing, you can make us clean. And he says, I am willing. That's his response. I am willing. And the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion. There it is again, like he was motivated by compassion. He was moved. And he says, I am willing. And the Bible then says, he touches him and says, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. My wife brought out a few weeks ago when we were studying this passage in church, that this is an indication that God loved the man as he was, just as he was. He didn't love the condition the man was in but he loved the man even though he was in that condition and this is awesome jesus can't really love us if he loves the things that destroy us the sins that separate us from society from each other from our loved ones no and from him he hates that he hates sin but he he loves us and he touches us and he associates with us and he interacts with us even in our uncleanness how in the world are we going to get clean if it's not through the gospel power of the Son of God? And so therefore, we come to Jesus and all of our filthiness and all of our fallenness and we say, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And He says, I'm willing. And He touches us. Jesus incarnated Himself, or God, He came into the human experience while the race was fallen, you know. And so, yeah, this is a powerful lesson to us. And We should have that attitude towards others. We're to be separate and touch not the unclean thing. Of course, because we're not to become affected by the world's spirit. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the power of Jesus because we fix our eyes on him. And he's our focus. He's the centerpiece of our life. He's our God. And we worship him and him alone. We don't violate the first two commandments. Uh, But... That doesn't mean we don't love people or that we spurn people or that we look down on people or even that we look down on ourselves because he's willing to touch us and make us clean. Okay, uh, look, just coming to the close of this lesson, uh, we're going to just touch on Thursday just for a bit, just for for a few minutes. Um, We're in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and this is Jesus' teaching on ministering. And he talks about visiting him when he's in jail, or not visiting him when he's in jail, uh, visiting him when he's sick, or not visiting him when he's sick. So he gives this kind of parable style. He gives this parable about, you know, I don't even know if I want to call it a parable, but he teaches about the judgment and him saying to those who are lost in the judgment, hey, you know, you never came to me and ministered to me and they respond by saying, well, what do you mean? Uh, and we didn't come ministering to you, we didn't see you. And he's like, well, inasmuch as as you didn't do it to the one of the least of these my brethren, you, you didn't do it to me. And So he associates himself with humanity so much that when people who call themselves his followers don't minister to other people and care for other people, he sees that as them not caring for him because he cares for his people so deeply and if you don't care for who i care for then you don't care for me and i was them they are my brothers and sisters they're my my fellow sufferers in human flesh and so i'd expect that if you love me you'll love them if you care for me you'll care for them and you didn't care for them and therefore you don't care for me i was one of them and you didn't care for them and so see ya and the converse is also true like he says to those on his right hand hey listen you can come into the glory of my father come into the kingdom prepared for you and when did we ever see you you know naked or unclothed or in prison or when, when did we ever see that and then he says ah inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these my brothers you've done it to me and once again jesus identifies himself with the hurting and the suffering. And the hurting and the suffering are not just the physically poor. It's the spiritually impoverished as well. And um, may God help us to care for what He cares for and to see as He sees and have the attitude towards people that He has towards people. The only way we can do this is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, You know, I believe that uh, love is a heaven-born gift. It does not come naturally to us What's natural to us is to despise the law of God. The Bible says to be carnally minded is death in Romans 8, 6, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then verse 7 says for the carnal mind or the natural state of man's mind is in enmity with God God, and is not subject to the law of God, which is a transcript, transcript of God's character, which is his love expressed in practical terms. And so if we're naturally at war in our hearts and in our minds with with love it's not natural for us to love so therefore where do we get love well god gives us a new heart the law of god is written in our hearts and uh, this comes through beholding you know beholding that's the whole teaching of second corinthians chapter 3 you know the new covenant works through us beholding jesus and and not allowing ourselves to be distracted by our uh, The media, distracted by Hollywood, distracted by our devices, distracted by our careers, just, no fixing our eyes on Jesus, um, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. And, uh, yeah, so anyways, guys, all the best to you. Thanks for joining me. I hope that we've provoked provoked some good thoughts and that you have a fantastic class this week. Please, please don't fail to like uh, and subscribe. Uh, To our podcast here, we want to to broaden our scope and get more and more people engaged with what we're producing here in the Sabbath School Department and in the Personal Ministries Department. God bless you guys. We're praying for you, that the Holy Ghost leads you, and that you have an amazing time through God's Word, and that through it, you will be transformed. God bless you. Bye-bye.